He is risen. risen All right. But do you believe that? Do you actually believe it? I know it's easy to say it and sing it when you're with three or four hundred of your closest friends here at West Highland on a Sunday morning. But, But do you really believe it, that Jesus rose from the dead? You know, when the... The dance that happened right at the beginning of, uh, of our service, some of the lyrics on the screen were very interesting. It talks about how Jesus' body was, like, he, he was dead. It said, you know, his lungs stopped breathing. His heart stopped pounding. When that happens, people just don't come back, right? Like, we, when we go to a funeral and we, we see an open casket, perhaps, we just know that's, that's the end for that person. That was, that was Jesus. So do you believe that, he, that that dead body actually came back physically to life, began breathing again, heart started pounding again? And if so, why do you believe that? For, for a lot of you here, it's probably because the Bible says so. And if the Bible says it, that's enough for me. Right? But you've probably got many friends, many family members for whom that's not the case. That's not enough for them. Do you know how you would interact with them and actually share with them maybe beyond the four Gospels and the New Testament about why we can have hope that Jesus actually did rise from the dead? And there's many of you here this morning. It's Easter Sunday. A lot of people are coming out because it's Easter, and you might be interested in Christianity. You might call yourself a Christian on a, when the census comes out, you check off Christian. But you might be unsure, actually, do I really believe that Jesus literally, physically rose from the dead? The, re- the real issue for, uh, for everyone this morning comes to not just what we think or feel about Jesus, but did he actually rise from the dead? Is that historical fact, or is it just religious folklore? My hope for our time this morning, as we spend some time in in God's Word and um, just looking at some other sources as well, is to present a case to you on why each of you individually here this morning can have confidence that Jesus did physically rise from the dead. And that it actually takes a larger leap of faith to actually believe one of the, the secular theories about what happened on Easter Sunday morning. And so, Let's start by looking again in the Gospel of Matthew. We were there on Good Friday for those that, of you that were here. We looked at, at Matthew chapter 27. So you can open up your Bibles to Matthew 27. In the chairs in front of you, there's Bibles there as well if you didn't bring one along with you. Matthew 27. We ended off our Good Friday message looking at, at, at why we believe Jesus was the Son of God. If you look at Matthew 27, I want you guys to see here what the Bible actually says about the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning so that we know what we're dealing with and that each one of us has to decide, is this actually true or, again, is it just religious folklore? What are the facts portrayed in the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew 27, verse 50, it says that Jesus cried out when he was on the cross with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. In the Gospels of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, It makes the death of Jesus even clearer. It doesn't use the language, he gave up his spirit. It says, Jesus gave out a loud cry, and he breathed his last. 
There was no more breath in that body. As we move forward in Matthew 27, we learn that after he died, he was buried and placed in a tomb. Look at verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. So Jesus not only died according to the scriptures, but he was buried and placed in a tomb for which they put a large stone in front of it. The third thing to note from Good Friday is that it wasn't just left like that. Roman guards were put in front of, were put in front of the tomb. Look at verses 65 and 66. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So we see some key facts here that have to be re- reckoned with when we're looking at what actually happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus died. Jesus was placed in a tomb. A, a stone was put in front of it. And a Roman guard was put there so that no one could mess with, what, with, with that. And no one could, no, no one could come and, t- and take the body of Jesus or, or anything like that. As we move on now to Matthew 28, we read about what in the Gospels what happened on Easter Sunday morning. It says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary... You know, how would you like to be known as the other Mary? Like, I, anyway, that's just a little side note there. It's like, I'd feel bad like, if it was Jamie and the other Jamie. But <laughs> went to visit the tomb. But when they got there, they found the stone of the tomb was rolled away and an angel sitting on that stone. And look with me at what it says in verses 5 and 6. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, so you're not going to find him in the tomb. He has risen, just as he said he would. Come and see the place where he lay. So the angel invites them in to see this. Check it out for yourself. The tomb's empty. Here the Bible makes it clear. There's no one in the tomb. Jesus has risen from the dead. The Gospels make that clear. So in verses 1 to 10, they're written to tell us to say, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And then in verses 11 to 15, it tells us the story about how the chief priests are now going to deal with this. They responded to the resurrection of of Jesus by hatching a plan to cover up this resurrection that happened. And the short version of the story is that they tell the guards, tell the people that if if they come here and look, the disciples stole the body. So it's not here anymore. So from Matthew 28, 1 to 15, we see that Jesus rose from the dead and that a plot was enacted by the religious leaders to cover it up. And so again, there's many of you for for whom this morning, you've got your Bible in your hand, and since the Bible says it, that's enough for you. You're ready to just place your full trust in Jesus because it's written in the Scriptures. But again, there's probably some of you here that, that that's not enough, right? Is this just religious folklore? Is this just something we do on Easter Sunday because it feels good and it's tradition? Have you guys ever heard of the statement, trust but verify? That, that statement, trust but verify, it was in the news uh, a while back in the, in the 80s, I believe, and it was during the time that there was uh, the nuclear disarmament at the end of the Cold War. 
and it was used by Ronald Reagan and his administration, trust but verify. As they're, they're working to disarm the Soviet Union, it was like, well, we can't trust what they say. Yeah, we're getting rid of all these bombs. But we should also verify that they're actually doing that as well. It would be prudent to not just take their word for it. And I think when it comes to the resurrection, because it's so important, we need to trust, but I think we should also verify that this is legit. Let me offer for you at least four reasons. There's many more that that could be given this morning, but I want to give four reasons why I believe that you can trust that Jesus physically rose from the dead and you can place your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The first one I would say is that the Gospels are, in fact, reliable. The Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are reliable. Why do we believe that? It's not just blind faith in old books that we say, yeah, these must be true. No, they're historically reliable. If we, one of the reasons why I believe that is because the things that were written in the Gospels, they were written during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses that attest to what happened on Easter Sunday morning. If, you, if we're looking at kind of the dating of when these, these New Testament letters were written, if we start with the book of Acts, we know that it was written at least before A.D. 70. And the reason why we know that is because, one of the clearest reasons is because it doesn't mention the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. If that had happened in the, in the lifetime of when that book was written, it surely would have been written about in the Bible. But it wasn't mentioned. The, the, gospel, or the, the Acts of the Apostles does also not mention the death of Paul. It doesn't mention the death of Peter. These things happened in the mid-60s. And so scholars date the book of Acts to the early 60s. Around AD 63, people say. And we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts, and we know that he wrote the gospel of Luke before he wrote the book of Acts, because he mentions that at the beginning of Acts. You've already read my other, my other letter, my other account of what's happened. And so that means that the, the gospel of Luke has to be either early 60s or late 50s, and it's dating. Scholars say that it's between 59 and 63 AD. So this means that the gospels were written within 30 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's also believed that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was the first of the four Gospels written. So that gets us even closer to the resurrection. But New Testament books outside of the Gospels were, were written even before the Gospels were. So our church right now, if you're, if you're here on, on most Sundays, you'll see that we're going through a series on 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians clearly mentions the death and resurrection of Jesus. And 1 Corinthians was dated about uh, the mid, early to mid-50s, which brings us now even closer to the acts of what happened on Easter, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, about 20 years. To put that in modern-day context, 20 years ago would be approximately the time of the 9-11 terrorist attack in, in New York, September 11, 2001. And so you can kind of see how for people that were living in the lifetime of what happened, 20 years is a long time, but it's also, you remember, probably many of you remember where you were September 11th, 2001. There's been a lot written about it that you could source from to say that if someone said, you know what, that actually didn't happen. You know, 3,000 people didn't die that day. Two planes didn't fly into the Twin Towers. 
we would be able to say, no, that's, that's ridiculous. That was only 20 years ago. We know that happened. I, was, I wasn't necessarily there, but I saw what happened, and I heard accounts of what happened. It was written, the Gospels were written close enough, and the New Testament was written close enough to the, to the time it was actually happening, that if those were around that wanted to contradict of what the, the Gospels were saying, they could have done that. They could have said, no, Jesus didn't resurrect. In fact, we, we've seen him, or, or we haven't seen him, or we saw his body or something like that. But it didn't happen. We also know that the Gospels are reliable because when you compare it to other ancient manuscripts, the New Testament just stands far and above anything else that was written in those days. I'll show you a slide that you can take a look at on the screen. You may need to get your uh, binoculars or uh, a glass out if you really want to read all these things. But um, this compares the New Testament manuscripts to other ancient works that were written in and around that time. And so on the, the far left column, you've got the name of the different works. You've got when's the earliest manuscript that we actually still have today? When was that written? And then what's the gap of time between the events of what happened and the earliest manuscript that we have? And so that third column, you, for it to be reliable, you want to see a smaller number there, right? And so if you compare the New Testament at the bottom, 30 years between the earliest manuscript and the, and the, the last writings of the New Testament, you compare it to other things that you can look at 300 years, 400 years, 850 years between the events and the early, or the writings and the earliest manuscripts. And then in the far right column, you want to see a bigger number there to make it more reliable. And so how many manuscripts do we actually have of these ancient writings? Well, if you compare it to, uh, say, for example, the top one there, Tacitus Annals, which I'm going to reference in a minute here, there's only 36 manuscripts that we have. And they were written 750 years, or those manuscripts are 750 years after the original writings. When you compare that to the New Testament, close to 6,000 that we still have 30 years. If we can know anything about the ancient time, the most reliable source to go to is actually the New Testament Gospels. On the next slide, you'll see if we compared the average Greek writer and how many manuscripts we have from those things, if, we, if, if each manuscript was about 2.5 inches thick, so the average size of maybe an average book that you would buy, and we place them and stack them up, the average ancient manuscript from other Greek writers would be four feet tall. Now you can see if you compare that to the New Testament manuscripts that we have, it's, if they were all on top of one, it would be over a mile high, which is the equivalent just to put it in our minds to help us understand that four times, more than four times the size of the Empire State Building if we were to stack all of the New Testament manuscripts that, that refer to the events that we're talking about this morning. A textual critic, Daniel Wallace, he says, when it, when it re regarding the New Testament manuscript evidence, we have an embarrassment of riches. There's just nothing that even comes close to being as historically reliable as the New Testament. So when we read these, these accounts in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we can say they are reliable. And it puts the onus then on those who, who deny the truth of the gospel to say, well, wh what do you say to all this? How do, you, how do you get your belief about what happened on Easter Sunday morning from? Because I've got a stack of manuscripts that could go and above the Empire State Building four times on my side. 
What are you going to propose, if not that? But the good thing is that we, it's not just New Testament manuscripts that we have. A second reason why I, I would trust the gospel accounts is that sources outside of the Bible also confirm things that happened back then. Let me give you one example. I, I referenced on that screen, and so if we can trust it, Tacitus, the annals. Tacitus was a, a, a non-Christian Roman historian who wrote about the events of the Roman Empire in the first century. So he's a non-Christian, he's not, yeah, not a Christian, but writing about what happened in the Roman Empire during the first century. And there's a section of his book that he writes directly about what was happening with the Christians. Here's an ex excerpt of what he wrote. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero, so the emperor at the time, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. So he's talking about how there's people now known as Christians. They're named after, as we'll see here, Christus, so Christ, Jesus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Have you heard that story before? Well, yeah, that, that's what the Gospels say. Pontius Pilate, it mentions as well, um, Tiberius. Thus, or sorry, and the most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out. So after Christus was crucified, it didn't just stop the Christian movement. It actually started to move forward more now. It broke again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, so he's not very kind about what he thinks about Christianity, but even to Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So here it is confirmed by a non-Christian source. Jesus died by the extreme penalty. We know that's crucifixion under the reign of Tiberius and under Pontius Pilate. This was done to eradicate the teaching of this Christus, but it only checked it for a moment. Maybe like a day, because we know what happened. He notes that Christianity did not die, but in fact spread not only around Judea, the local area, but all the way to Rome, the center of the Roman Empire. From this quote alone again, we see Jesus was crucified. He was called Christ. That's the, the Greek word for Messiah. He was known as the Messiah. Christians were persecuted for their faith, and it didn't stop the spread of the Christian faith. If time permitted, we could look deeper into the writings of Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, mentioning similar things. Jesus was crucified under Pilate. Christianity spread because the Christians believed that he had risen from the dead. Another example could be um, from the Roman governor, Pliny the Younger, who wrote about the problem he was facing and tried to eradicate Christianity from the Roman Empire. So as, as much as we try to get rid of them, as much as we try to punish these Christians, they just keep spreading. It keeps going. We can't stop them. Which leads you to believe something happened more than just a man died and he was buried. Something happened that caused this to spread. So we have good reason to believe the New Testament Gospels are reliable. We see that even secular historians talk about these events that we know and are familiar with. And it's clear the disciples were proclaiming the Gospel in the face of much persecution. And this leads us to another question that will help us. What happened to those fearful, meek, 
disciples that turned them into these men that turned the Roman Empire upside down. What actually happened? Something had to happen. The third thing I would propose to you is that the the transformation of the disciples is massive evidence to the fact that Jesus literally rose from the dead. Early church writings tell us that all but one of the original disciples died a martyr's death. The only the apostle John, who lived up to the age of 90, and he was the one who was out in exile, island of Patmos, when he wrote the book of Revelation, he's the only one that lived and didn't die by a martyr's death. The apostle uh, James was the first of the disciples, the 12 disciples to be put to death. That's recorded in Acts chapter 12. You can read about it. He was put to get to death by the sword under the orders of King Herod. Peter was crucified in Rome at around 66 AD. Tradition tells us that he was crucified, but not in the same way as Jesus. He didn't feel like he was worthy to die the same death that Jesus did, so he was crucified upside down for his faith. The other disciples spread the gospel around the known word, and they they all, as well, faced martyr's death, all except for the apostle John. The transformation of the disciples is massive evidence that needs explanation if you don't believe in the resurrection about what happened to those guys who after Jesus died were hiding, that went back to work as fishermen before they met the risen Christ and everything changed for them. The most logical explanation is that what they were proclaiming was actually true, that Jesus did rise from the dead. Then the fourth thing I would say is that something happened that changed the world. Something happened that changed the world. About a third of the population today is Christian. It's about 2.4 billion people who would claim to be at least nominal followers of Jesus. We might feel in the West or in Canada like, like Christianity is on the decline, But globally, the church is growing faster than it ever has in human history. South America, Africa, Asia, the church is just exploding in growth. Something happened that has caused all of this to happen. We find ourselves sitting here today in what year? 2023 AD. AD stands for Anno Domini. It's a Latin term. It means in the year of our Lord. You are sitting here in a time that is, that is basically founded by Jesus. Everything that happened before B.C., before Christ, all of human history is divided about did this happen before Jesus or has it happened in the year of our Lord since Jesus has been alive? If you reject the resurrection of Jesus... And just say, you know, maybe it was just some spiritual resurrection or maybe he was just a legend that didn't exist. You're denying the fact that the world was completely transformed then by Jesus. And you're basically saying everything that's happened since then, it's just because this, this, this carpenter um, from Jerusalem or from Bethlehem who was crucified beside two common thieves changed the world. Does that seem like a more logical explanation for the world that we find ourselves in today? Something happened that changed the world. And the resurrection is the most logical explanation for what happened. And so each of us this morning, 
we have a choice. I can't choose for you. Everyone has to decide for themselves, what, what do you think, given this evidence, about the resurrection? Is it just religious folklore that's nice to come to? Maybe we, we do a little Christmas thing, then we do a little Easter thing, and that's our Christianity? Just pack it away like the Christmas tree once, once December's over, and then you know, maybe, maybe do something around Easter time? Is that, is that what we do with Christianity, with Jesus who rose from the dead? The eyewitnesses proclaimed that Jesus had literally, literally risen from the dead. The onus now, or the burden of proof, now falls on those who go against what the eyewitnesses say. So for yourself this morning, if you're unsure, or for those who are believers this morning, if you have family members or friends or coworkers that would deny the resurrection, the onus is now on them to say, well, if it wasn't what was just explained for the last five or ten minutes, what did happen? Are there better secular explanations for what happened on Easter Sunday morning? Well, let's look at a few of the most popular that have been put forward. I'll, I'll, I'll present three. So, because if, if you don't like the what I just said, here's the other couple options that I'll give you that you can maybe you can maybe choose from. The first one is the conspiracy theory: disciples stole the body, right? This is what was recorded in uh, the Gospel of Matthew about what. Um, the chief priests told the guards to, to tell. That was the tale that they were told to, to put this story to bed. This, if after the tomb is empty, the guards are now supposed to propagate that the disciples stole the body. But the question remains, why would the, why would the disciples do this? Did they have motivation to steal the body of Jesus? One of the reasons why I think this is false, there's, there's several. The one is that there was no concept of a Messiah that would rise from the dead in Jewish theology. They only believed in a general resurrection. They expected at the end of time that all the faithful would, be, would, would rise at the same time. They weren't expecting a Messiah to, to rise from the dead. This is why so often when Jesus told his disciples, hey guys, the time's coming where the Son of Man's going to be handed over and die, and three days later though, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, what? I don't, I don't get that. <laughs> that doesn't compute for me. <laughs> what do you mean you're going to die? Right? This is why the disciples, they didn't understand. There was no concept for them that they were going to follow a Messiah that was going to die and then rise from the dead. So why, they, they weren't going to propagate some false story that they didn't even understand or believe themselves. But the second thing, and maybe more, more clearly, again, I've already talked about how the 11 of the 12 disciples died martyrs' deaths. Would you propagate a story you knew to be false, and then when the time comes for you to be crucified upside down, are you going down with that ship still? Or are you going to be like, you know, actually, we stole the body. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you know, put the nails away. I stole the body. No, none of them did that. And they weren't even together when they, were, when they died. They didn't have to like stand, okay, none of you guys better, you know, better fess up. No, they were all martyred separate from one another, and none of them recanted in their faith. There's no reason why the disciples would have stolen the body. This, this idea that the disciples stole the body 
doesn't, even, doesn't have any feasibility today, even among secular scholars. But it's one of the ones that in, in history has been proposed. The second one is, is the swoon theory. You may have heard of this before, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just kind of like swooned, <laughs> but was still kind of, kind of breathing quietly, trying to pretend like he was dead so that they'd maybe leave him alone. Is this plausible? Does this sound like a realistic explanation for what happened? Well, no. It, it doesn't take into account that the Roman executioners, these guys were professionals. They had one job. Make sure those ones that are on the cross died. And they made sure of it. We read in the, in the gospel accounts that even, like, they, they had their spears that they would stick in people's sides just to make sure that they were dead. But let's, let's somehow say that Jesus did survive the crucifixion. And they placed him in the tomb, and he kind of just like, you know, one eye shut. He's like, is it closed? Okay, I'm up now. How, how is he supposed to get out of that tomb now? For one, massive stone rolled in front of it, and there's guards there as well. Unless there's some back, you know, entrance that, that the guards didn't know about, and Jesus was able to sneak out after he had already been beaten, basically into a, a bloody pulp in the lead-up to the the crucifixion. The swoon doesn't really, the swoon theory doesn't really make logical sense. It, it seems like it's a bit of more of a logical jump to believe that than to believe he miraculously rose from the dead. The third one is the hallucination theory. This is where the disciples thought they saw Jesus, but they actually, they really didn't. Of all the secular theories, I think this is the one that would be you know, if I wasn't going to believe in, in the, the literal resurrection, which I do, this is the one that probably has the most, like, credence. The reason why I would say that is because if, if, if the disciples thought they saw Jesus, that might mean that they still go on to prop, propagate the gospel because they, they, act, they thought he was risen. And so in their minds, they're, con, they're convinced of it. So that's why they go and spread the gospel. They face martyr's death. So that would, if, if you're not going to believe in the actual resurrection, this is the one I would suggest to you. But still, is it actually historically reliable? Does it actually make sense when, you, when, it, comes under, uh, when it comes under serious thought? Well, no. There's several problems with it. One, I would say, is that hallucinations are most common from people that are expecting to see someone. We've already kind of established the disciples weren't expecting to see Jesus. They'd, they were hiding. They were, they were going about back as fishermen. They weren't thinking he was going to be coming back. But another issue is that there was a number of appearances. It wasn't just like a one-off where they thought, oh, maybe I saw Jesus, and then, and then that was it. No, there was a number of, of appearances of Jesus in a number of different places. We talked already about 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about in verses 3 to 6, and again, this was written just 20 years after the events of, of the resurrection. It says this, Paul's writing to the church, and he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, most of whom are still living. 
So Jesus appeared multiple times to multiple people. Hallucination just doesn't become an option when this happens. And, and Paul makes it clear, he's saying, most of these people that saw him, they're still living. If you don't believe that it actually happened, go talk to them, right? He could probably give, he could probably give some names. He doesn't go into that in 1 Corinthians 15, but he's, he's probably like, you know, I got a list of people. You could talk. He, he listed a few, the disciples, Peter, um, he appeared to himself, to Paul. And then the fact that the fact that he appeared to multiple people at the same time makes it clear that this wasn't a hallucination. Group hallucinations just don't happen. They're not recorded. Clinical psychologist Gary Sibsey says, I have surveyed the professional literature, which are peer-reviewed journal articles and books, written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other healthcare professionals during the past two decades, and have yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination. So again, everyone here this morning, everyone here watching online needs to make a decision. What are we going to do with these facts? We can't simply ignore it. If we ignore it, to be honest, we do so at our own peril to our own souls. Going back to the quote I mentioned at the beginning of this message, Tim Keller, he says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept it all. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why bother worrying about anything, he said. Jesus claimed to be God, and he demonstrated that by dying on the cross, but then physically rising from the dead on the third day. If he rose from the dead, then this is a claim that we we can't just mess around with. We have to take it seriously. If Jesus is the Son of God, as his resurrection talks about or proves, his teachings need to be the teachings that guide your life. If Jesus is the Son of God, then his standard of morality needs to be the standard of morality that you have in your life. Lee Strobel, he's the author of a book called The Case for Christ. He was an investigative journalist, and he spent time investigating this, talking to professionals in different areas of uh, of, of academia. And at the end of this book, he writes, if Jesus is who he claims to be, he rightfully deserves your allegiance, your obedience, and your worship. And so, what do we do now in light of all this information? What, 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 what do we do with the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead? Let me give a few implications before we close our message this morning. One of my verses that I just love is in the Gospel of John. It talks about how we can know Jesus personally, how we can know God. It's John 1, verse 12. It says this, speaking of Jesus, it says, Yet to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This verse tells us that when it comes to our relationship with the risen Christ, there's three things that we see in this verse. The first thing is to receive. The Christian faith, it's not about, it's not about what you've done. It's about what's been done on your behalf. One of the major things that separates Christianity from other major world religions is that the other world religions, they're all about, this is what you have to do to make yourself right with God. You have to pray five times a day. You have to make a pilgrimage, a spiritual pilgrimage. 
You have to go through maybe several reincarnation experiences. Or maybe you have to do good deeds to get rid of the bad karma in your life. All other, they're the same. They're about what you need to do to make yourself right with God. Atheism, in fact, is the exact same as well, but instead of some God out there, the God is within ourselves. We are God, right? And so it's how we live the good life, how we make ourselves right, is by, by following a list of things that we make for ourselves. So we have to live in a certain way in order to feel good about ourselves. And other people better live in that way too, or else we're going to judge them. Atheism just makes a God out of self. Atheism doesn't get a, a free pass on this one. They're the exact same as every other major world religion. Christianity is different. Christianity is unique because it is about what has been done for you. Christianity is not about what you have to do for God. It's about what God has done for you. Christianity is about receiving. I'm receiving from God the thing that I could never do on my own. This verse also says that we need to believe. Those who believed in his name. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? What evidence is there in your life that you believe in the risen Christ? Another, another word the Bible uses for belief is faith. Believing in Jesus and having faith in him, is just, it's more than just words. It's more than just attending a religious service every once in a while. Believing means you're shaping your life around that belief. You know, I'll, I'll go over here and I'll grab this stool for an illustration. You know, this is a, a normal stool. It's the same as many other stools you may have seen in other places. A lot of people know what stools are, what they're meant to do. They're meant to be something that you could sit on. A lot of people could explain, you know, it's, this one's got wood and then it's got some metal and some screws holding it together. And would you, would it, is it going to hold me up? Well, yeah, a lot of people would say, yeah, the stool's going to hold me up. But then a lot of people just end up saying, yeah, that's a stool that will hold me up. And they stay at, uh, at distance. And, that, and in some ways, that's how people treat faith. It's like, I know everything about faith, Jamie. Like, I know, I know what these things that you've said. But have you actually based your life around these beliefs? Have you actually said to the, said, you know, I, I don't just know about this stool. I know what the stool is supposed to do, and my life is now different because I, I know that, and I can sit down on the stool and show that my faith in the stool is real because I'm, I'm putting my, that faith into action. A lot of people know a lot of things about Christianity, but they haven't actually taken that, that chance to, to, to take that step of faith and sit down on the stool in the same way that we say, I believe that Jesus is God, and now I'm going to live my life after him. So we need to receive Jesus. It's not something that we do. It's what God has done for us. We need to believe in him. Our life needs to show that, not just by mental assent, but by how we're the fruit uh, of our life. But the third thing in that verse is that we become. We become children of God. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you believe in his name, you become a child of God. This is a relationship with the living God Spiritually speaking, this means you are reborn. Your spirit is reborn. All, all of us kind of know our spirit is in need of a rebirth. And that's what it talks about when you come to faith in Jesus. 
When over time, as you follow Jesus, this inward spiritual reality begins to change you on the outside as well. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. And so again, some, there are likely some of us this morning who are here, some of you sitting here this morning, who are unsure of where you stand before a holy God. Not knowing that if this was your last day, before you put your head down on your pillow at the end of the day, you met the living God, what would you say on your behalf? How, how, what would your standing be before him? My plea for you is to take the admonition of John 1, 12, seriously. That you would receive Jesus. That you would stop striving on your own to do it in your own strength. That you would take that gift, that gift that you could never do on your own. We all know that. We can't even live up to our own standards, let alone the standards of a holy God. But Jesus has done that on your behalf. You receive that from him. And you believe in his name. You don't just talk about, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. You know, I, you know, I've got the t-shirt. I went here or there. I go to church every once in a while. No, your life is transformed because you've given your life over to the risen Christ. You, believe, you receive and you believe. And you become a child of God. You're welcomed into his family. There's no greater calling than to be known as a child of God and loved by God the Father. The fourth implication I'll give just before we close isn't from John chapter 1, but from 1 Peter 1. And this is for all of us this morning who have received the risen Christ into our lives. We can now be people of great hope. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, you have a living hope. Not a theoretical hope. Not a whimsical hope. A living and alive hope. That no matter what comes before you, you can get through it. Your best days as a follower of Christ are ahead of you, not behind you. Because you are going to be with the risen Christ. First, uh, or sorry, Romans... Verse, chapter 6, verse 5, says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Union with Christ means that death can't separate us from him. We are united to him in persecutions, yes, in hardships, yes, in his death, yes, but also in his resurrection. This is real hope. This isn't just whimsical Sunday morning and then it doesn't matter for the rest of your life. This changes everything. This has changed everything for me. You know, this morning before most of you were awake, and especially since this is the 11 o'clock service, I know this is probably true, I went out to, to see it an Easter sunrise. But I didn't go to the, I didn't go to the, the cliffs of, uh, of Hamilton Mountain Brow. I went to a cemetery. Many of you know that just under three years ago, my wife Vanessa and I, we lost our second born son when he was hit by a vehicle crossing the street coming home for school. 
Jude's now buried at Mount Hamilton Cemetery. And this morning, I went out with a lawn chair, went through Timmy's drive-thru, grabbed a coffee, and just sat there, listened to the birds chirping, as over the horizon I saw the light coming, and then eventually the sun rising. And in the same way that the sun cannot be stopped from rising every morning, Jesus could not be stopped from rising from the dead. Death could not hold on to him. It had nothing to say to him because he was without sin. And Jesus invites us into that. And so that I have hope. I can, I can grieve the loss of a son, but not like those without hope. I know I will see him again. He will experience a resurrection when Jesus returns and all that are united to him will also experience that resurrection. My hope is that for each one of you this morning, it's not just this theoretical knowledge that doesn't actually change anything. Jesus changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. There's nothing that can happen in this world that can take that away from you if you are united to Christ. And so I would urge you this morning, again, if you've never placed your faith in the risen Christ, you don't know that living hope, that there's no better Sunday to do that on Easter Sunday. Receive Christ. Believe in his name. Become a child of God. And experience a true and living hope. Lord Jesus, we do praise you, we thank you for your love for us. That that love wasn't just in words, it wasn't just in pithy teaching, but it was in love demonstrated. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Lord Jesus, you did that. You showed us the greatest love we can ever know. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God, I thank you so much for this hope. Lord, I pray for each person here that they would know that hope, that they would trust that hope, that they would look to the resurrection, not just as some religious folklore, but something that they could stake their whole life on. God, we thank you and we praise you. In the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. We'd love to see you back uh, next Sunday uh, at, at West Highland. We're just going through the, we usually just go through books of the Bible. Right now we're going through 1 Corinthians. And so we'd love to have you back uh, next Sunday here in person. And if you're watching online, we'd love to have you out here uh, at, at the church building on Sunday morning as well. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My hope is that for each one of you here this morning, you would know that living hope and that you would place your faith and trust in him and live in the ways of Jesus. Happy Easter, everyone. Have a good Sunday. Good